It's time for a more in-depth look at today's news. It's time to find out who's pulling the strings. It's time for the Behind the Curtain podcast with your host, author Jeff Reynolds. Hi, I'm author Jeff Reynolds, and this is episode 21 of the Behind the Curtain podcast. Before we begin, I want to remind you to check out my new website, www.jeffreynolds.net, and Jeffrey is spelled J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. This is where you'll find all of my content from all of the different platforms where my articles can be read. Also, I want to ask you a favor. When you go to jeffreyreynolds.net, please sign up for my newsletter. I won't spam you, and I'll send out a couple of emails a month tops. This allows me to keep you updated on all of the cool new stuff I'm doing in 2020. I made it really easy, too. Just go to the website and click the link at the top that says subscribe to the newsletter. This week's episode goes a little bit longer than normal because it's packed with content. The first segment this week features Brendan Dilley, a self-help guru turned social media rock star who has been repeatedly deplatformed for his support of President Trump. Brendan says that he has the formula for who gets targeted for deplatforming by social media companies and how to beat them at their own game. Brendan wrote the book Still Breathing, The Wisdom and Teachings of a Perfectly Flawed Man in 2013 and currently hosts a daily show on Periscope called The Real Hub Life that draws tens of thousands of viewers daily. I'd tell you where to find him on Twitter, but he's probably already had his account banned again. In segment two, I bring back a previous guest, Justin Brecht. Justin is a policy analyst for the Oregon Senate Republicans, and he came on the show to tell us all of the bad bills that are coming in the short legislative session that starts on February 3rd. Remember, both houses have supermajorities of Democrats, so theoretically they should be able to pass whatever progressive mess they want. Will the Republicans be able to stop them again with a walkout, or will the Democrats change the rules so that the minority party can't deny quorum? Justin tells us that and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to the Behind the Curtain podcast wherever you listen to it, and please leave a positive rating. The more subscribers and the better ratings, the higher Behind the Curtain will rank on podcast services like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, among many others. Stick around to the very end so you can hear a full version of I Am America, the theme song by my buddy Brian Futch. Hey, did you know I wrote a book? It's called Behind the Curtain, Inside the Network of Progressive Billionaires and Their Campaign to Undermine Democracy. It's an examination of the dark money on the left that continues to fuel the worst of the swamp creatures in Washington, D.C. There's a real appetite out there for folks to learn about who's pulling the strings on the left and what their ultimate goals are. I've done several speaking engagements over the past several months, and I'm looking for more. If you know of any conservative clubs, Republican groups, Tea Party or 912 clubs, or anyone else who would get something out of following the dark money on the left, please email me at jeff at jeffreyreynolds.net. Search for Behind the Curtain, Inside the Network of Progressive Billionaires, and their campaign to undermine democracy in stores or online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Simon & Schuster. It's available in hardback, Kindle, or Nook now. Check out whoownsthedems.com for more information. All right, welcome back into the show. My name is Jeff Reynolds. I'm your host, and I'm with a a longtime friend of mine, uh, Brendan Dilley, who is an author, a Periscope phenomenon, a podcaster, a a writer, a self-help guru, and sort of a force of nature on social media. Welcome in, Brendan. Thanks, Jeff. I'm uh, happy to be here, man. Good Good to be talking with you this morning. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while, and I'm I'm glad we were able to reconnect. So, uh, why don't you give me a quick background on how you got into? First of all, you wrote a self-help book. Uh, tell us all about that and, and how that launched you into sort of watching what Donald Trump does on, on social media and kind of 
creating your own cottage industry all by yourself. Yeah, well, you know, I um, I actually wrote the self help book back in 2013 and published it back then. Uh, was completely uh, apolitical publicly. Um, ironically enough, man, you know, like a lot of authors will talk about finding their voice as writers, and I found my voice uh, during this time period where I was blogging. And I've always been involved with politics, uh, going back quite some time, uh, more economic side of things. I was very passionate about, uh, following economics, studying economics and politics. I was a little bit, you know, leery of because there was just really even, you know, my first election that I would have been eligible to vote in was 2000. Uh, I wasn't going to vote for either of those candidates. <laughs> uh, then, then, you know, I just wasn't, I'm like, I know too much, even as an 18 year old, uh, in 2004 rolls around again, I'm like, no way. And then uh, around 2006, um, I got really heavy into Ron Paul and started reading Ron Paul's books and listening to him speak. I attended one of his uh, speeches. So you were part of the revolution. Um, yes, sir. <laughs> so that was the first political person that I was like, this guy is the deal. Like, this is this is how you get it done. So in 2008, <clears throat> I voted for Ron Paul, donated to Ron Paul. Again, in 2012, I wrote his name in, same thing. Um, and in 2013, I wrote, a article uh, for my blog at the time that was a political article talking about Dr. Paul and just really, I was laying it out there. And it was the first time I found my voice as a writer where it just flowed, man. And I felt like, dude, this is, I got something here. And, uh, and now I knew that particular blog wouldn't be usable for anything I was going to write in the future, the books, book wise, but it, 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 it was different, man. It gave me like sort of a jump off point. And I started blogging. Um, and four months later I had a 300 page book done and, uh, published the book, uh, you know, God, I finished it all completely by June and it was out and it was a bestseller by mid October. So yeah. Talk about the book real quick. It's uh, it's a pretty interesting idea. You go from zero to bestseller in a couple of months. Talk about the, the book itself. Yeah, it was. The book is called Still Breathing, The Wisdom and Teachings of a Perfectly Flawed Man. And the book was basically the self-help book that I always wished someone would have written for me. Um, my mom was a motivational speaker and author. I grew up in that industry, um, been attending seminars since I was a little guy. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, been reading uh, self-development and listening to audio series pretty much all, all up till the age of you know probably 18 or so. I was just completely into that. Um, but I always felt like there was a distance between the author and the reader, uh, meaning like I knew there was more to these people than what they were putting in the books. And I hated that because it felt like they were leaving out critical parts, right? And yeah. They're I, up on stage and you're uh, consuming their product. Correct. Yeah. It's well, they're, they're elevating themselves. And so you're still not, they're not among you and therefore they're not very relatable. And it was really hard to dig into some of the nuanced aspects of self-development. And so I started blogging and I, I was, the thing that was beautiful about it was I was blogging for three months, Jeff, before I figured out I had written a book. I, I just kept <laughs> blogging and, and everybody says, oh, you only are supposed to have X amount of characters in a blog, anything more than that, nobody will read it. Well, which was totally untrue for me. Uh, people loved it. They were gobbling it up. And I actually converted those uh, blog posts into full-blown chapters and, um, then it became time to arrange it. I did that myself. I put the, because it wasn't in any particular order. Um, so I put it into an order that made sense to me. I actually used 
uh, a lot of music albums to inspire that order. I had a methodology to how I was going to do it. Um, and then I published it, you know, and I, I found somebody uh, that was ultra talented, a friend of mine that um, had never been involved in book publishing or editing. And I approached her because she was probably somebody who had the highest IQ of anybody I knew. And she was also um, just a wizard with social media as well, like very, uh, just a jack of all trades. And her name was Amy Weicker, and she became my editor. And together, Amy and I, from August of 2013 until October 9th of 2013, uh, in that time period, took a Microsoft Word text and converted <laughs> that into a full-blown book and got it completely done. And we were working 18-hour days together, um, and it became what it is today. And it hasn't been touched touch since that time. I mean, it's still the same version that we banged out in that eight weeks, and we put it out. Uh, I was blessed enough to have Amy, you know, because I had the content, but Amy had the skills on how social media worked, specifically Twitter. And, uh, you know, we were growing just at an absurd rate on my original account. I think I had 90 followers when when I, uh, you know, her and I were working on it together. And we, we actually started in September of that year, you know, three or four weeks before the book came out. And I think we had 30,000 followers by December. Um I mean, it, wow. just, it really took off. It was very organic. Um, I had celebrities and other publishers contacting me because the book was selling like gangbusters. All we were doing was publishing quotes from the book uh, yeah. onto Twitter. We were posting uh, pictures of it. I mean, really just we were being creative and we were way ahead of a lot of people on social media marketing. I mean, the way that we did it, the the photo, photos we used as far as um, people who were buying the book and posting photographs of it. So that's kind of where I started out. And that was back in 2013. Um, and again, it had nothing to do with politics. And so we put the book out and it just, it takes off. I end up getting approached uh, quietly from two of the you know largest uh, literary agencies in the country. And it was so, you know, humbling because the vice president of this company, you know, reaches out to me on her personal account on Twitter and says, give me your phone number. I need to talk to you. And she calls me and I find out she's the the vice president of uh, this huge literary agency, Uh, literally the number one. I mean, they're the biggest. And she, she's like, who the hell are you? (laughs) And I said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, I kid you not. My entire Twitter feed is full of your retweets and quotes from your book. And I work for the biggest literary agency in the country. And we can't get this kind of traction. She's like, give me your numbers. What are you doing? Who are you? Know, who are you published through? I said, I created my own publishing company. We did this ourselves. And uh, we had a great discussion. Um, at the time, she was considering trying to sign me on and take the book because she wanted to take it to publishers. But they are a Christian publishing company. And my book is so chock full of cursing, and, <laughs> you know, edgy content. She was like, I, and we had a great conversation. She just said, look, you, you have something. Do not let anybody publish this. This is yours. Don't give it to a big house. Don't, you don't need anybody like me. Just keep doing what you're doing. And she was hundred percent correct. Um, so the book just continued to kind of take on a life of its own all through 2014 and 2015. Um, And, uh, you know, and, and I, again, I stayed apolitical because I'll be straight up with you, Jeff. I had given up on the country. I'm like, we're screwed. We're getting Hillary in 2016. Like, (laughs) you know, I was not really paying attention. I was so pissed off after what had happened to Ron Paul. And here was my logic, man. And I still kind of implement this in my show. I was like, we're never going to get better candidates. If the, if the people who are voting don't know how to think, like if they're not improving as human beings, if the voters and the electorate are not improving, 
then we're never going to elect better leadership, right? And that's exactly right. You look at the founding times of this country, and and you know the, the founders themselves obviously are you know elites, but then you look at uh, the the character of the voting populace versus what we've got today, and it, it's completely you know unrecognizable. Hundred percent. And so then I made it my mission. I was like, because I was still, I was still following the economics of things, but I was I I was somebody that was like a political junkie and just turned it all off after 2012. Cause I was just like, well, we're screwed. Right. I'm yep. like, and now I'm like, I'm just going to focus on hundred percent internal stuff. And maybe, maybe in 10 or 20 years, the electorate will have improved and maybe I'll have made a dent on humanity enough that these people will know how to think clearly. And um, then 2015 rolls around and I'm staying out of the fray. I, I mean, I was, it was kind of interesting, man. I would say 60% of my followers were Democrats. Um, I had a huge account, 110,000 or something at that point. Um, and this is all based just off the book? Just the book. You, started your, you, you hadn't started your show by then? Nope, nope. I'm just life coaching and I'm doing uh, just talk, you know, and I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm coaching celebrities all over the place. I've got, you know, pro athletes reaching out to me, asking me for advice. I've got, you know, it, it, the, the who's who of Hollywood. They're trying to, you know, get in contact with me. And it was, you know, I have uh, PR companies trying to get me to sign contracts because they want to rep my stuff. And I'm like, and, and let's, let's just pause here for a second. Did, did you ever have those moments where you're like, how the hell did I get here? And who am I to give b- advice to these people? Um, Not really, man. Like, I, I think it was mostly because I, I, I knew the path I had taken was one that I had laid out for myself. So it wasn't really like, somebody just came along and was like, Oh, you're great. And we want to give you this position. Like I was self-made. So I already knew exactly how I had got there. I knew my advice was sound because I had a, a, uh, cause you lived it. Well, I had lived it, but I also had, you know, at that point I had, uh, you know, a, a enough examples of people who have read the book and it impacted them. I had enough coaching clients at that point to be able to go, yeah, look, is this works like what I'm doing works. These philosophies work. Um, so I never really had that kind of doubt. Like I always knew, you know, I knew it was where it was coming from. So I was like, this is going to be, you know, I, I knew I was, I could sit and, and feel comfortable with what I was teaching and, and feel good about that. Um, but like I said, I, it was very strange because, you know, all of the people that probably hate my guts now were the people that were like <laughs> begging me for answers, uh, literally in my DMS and, and, you know, the bunch of verified check marks and you name it trying yep. to get in contact with me and want to hang out with me and all this stuff. And I was very leery um, of these people. And, and so I probably, I never really got involved beyond just giving free advice and trying to help out and chart, you know, sometimes they were became more than that, but you know, as far as clients and stuff, but uh, didn't sign any contracts, didn't join any PR firms. Didn't nobody sat right with me. I had tons of meetings. Nobody was really, it was just like, something's not right. I don't want to be a part of this. Um, yeah, they're trying to sort of piggyback on your own yeah, success, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then, you know, I'm staying out of politics. Um, I'm, a, you know, sparingly commenting on what's happening in the summer of 2015. I'm still not really even aware. I'm aware that Donald Trump's running for president. At the time, I have so little knowledge really about what's going on in that world that I'm, I have a very, you know, at that point, I'm just commentary, just being, you know, just making jokes about everything, but nothing serious, not really getting into the nitty gritty of things. And it's probably around, uh, you know, fall of 15 that I start paying attention a little bit more seriously. Um, my stepdad starts telling me about, you know, he's like, dude, Trump's the man. I'm like, really? 
And I'm still not really because I'm like, he's screwed because I'm like, at this point, you don't understand how jaded I was. I was like, sure, it is Hillary. I was too. I'm like, she is the chosen one. We don't even have real votes. This is nonsense. Um, then my, uh, you know, father-in-law came down for a visit and he was extremely passionate uh, Trump supporter. I remember it was December of 15. We had this debate and I was like arguing with him about it because I'm like, no, you don't understand. The whole system's rigged. He's like, no, this guy's the real deal. And I'm like, all right, I'll pay a little more attention. So then, and, and I'm kind of like the kind of person where if I don't know something and if it's something that doesn't interest me, I'll sit quietly by and I'll listen to other people talk about it. But if it's something that's interesting to me, I literally will dig into it and research it until I'm an expert. And that was Trump. <laughs> like I was like, I went from, I don't care about this guy. He just talks a lot of stuff and I'm just disregarding him. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, I'm curious about him. And then I dug into him and I dug and I dug and I spent, I mean, an ungodly amount of hours <laughs> researching him. So by probably by primary season, I'm like literally full bore Trump train, but I'm not doing it publicly still because I'm like, I don't even know how to, go about discussing this on my self-help page. So I'm not right. talking to my audience about it. I'm not bringing it up to them uh, because I just don't even know how to really go about that. Um, by June of that year, I start to talk about it a little bit. And by August, July and August, I am like full blown Trump train. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and it was so strange, man. You gotta understand like in July of that year, I've got, I've got Paul Abdul. This is true story. In a matter of four days, I had Paul Abdul, Jesse Jackson, and uh, Rosario Dawson all retweeting me, following me, and interacting. Wow. Right, and and this is and before then you they jump know, into the Trump world, and and, and oh, everything gets uh, skewed. Exactly, everything. Yeah. All of a sudden, I go from one week, all of these celebrities and famous people are like, "You have amazing content. We love you. Go at a great mind." And a week later, I am a white supremacist, racist, <laughs> bigoted, literally all in a matter right, of a week, yeah. all because I announced that, you know, I'm like, oh, I love this guy and Donald Trump's the man. He's going to win. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is weird, man. And so, yeah, yeah that's where that's kind of where I made the transition. Periscope at that point, I would do periodically, but I wasn't really into it um, like consistently yet. I hadn't found my stride there. Um I end up uh, doing some scopes after the election, trying to calm people down because I see the the panic from what was still my followers. They were freaking out. I'm like, look, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be great, actually. Just relax. Um, you know, and I will say, I got hundreds of messages from African American followers of mine because you understand, fifty percent of the sixty percent were minorities that followed me because you can look up those statistics on Twitter and. Of that 50%, I'm, I don't know how many people DM me and said, look, man, I trust you. You helped me through a lot in my life. I don't know anything about this guy. Everybody, my family, everybody tells me he's a racist, but I voted for him because you said I should vote for him. I Damn, got, really? I got, dude, tons of these comments. Like, I just wow. went out. Literally, people saying I went out on a limb and voted for him. I hope you're right. And, uh, you know, it was pretty cool. You know, we were able to, I was able to get some votes across the country for for Donald Trump just based on the fact that people were like, this guy's a self-help author who always keeps it 100. And if he's saying this is the guy, I don't know much about him, but I know this dude helped me fix my life. So I'm going to trust him for that. And, and they went out on a limb with, you know, and I think a lot that of them are like, crazy. Yeah. Man. I got a lot of feedback from people who are like, thank you. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, so that's kind of how I got into the political game from being a self-help guy, but I never abandoned those roots. Even now today doing the 
political entertainment talk show I do right now, uh, it's still steeped with, uh, you know, a lot of the philosophies I teach in my book and just it, in general, in my life coaching or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that give, that brings us to the point where I first encountered you when I wrote that article for you at uh, Media Equalizer or about you because you'd been uh, deplatformed by uh, Twitter. Uh, now, yeah. how many times is this now that you've been deplatformed since then? Uh, um, from 2017 to now. So they took out that original account, like we mentioned. And you know what's really sad is that account was 10 years old. They deleted it in March of 2018, and it had 135,000 followers. And really is a shame because, as I mentioned, half of them were Democrat. Democrats. Yeah. No, I've got I've got friends that have 10-year-old accounts yeah. with uh, tens of thousands of followers, and they've yeah. been deplatformed with no explanation. Well, you know what's really sad about it too, Jeff, is – what they did was they they took that account down and then they made it impossible to find me under new accounts, right? They because they they put us into these like digital ghettos where we're segregated from one another, and people <laughs> don't realize that I know it because yeah. I had a following that wasn't political before. And every once maybe, in a while, maybe, I get maybe a you have to go to the library to yeah. uh, set up your new account under well, a new it, IP. Address it doesn't even matter. None of that matters. What what they've done is those people. Once you start posting anything conservative. They put you into your own section of Twitter and you're away from the other groups that are on Twitter. And I know this because I had a lady, I had a, I must've had 25,000 followers just from Africa alone. True story. They wanted wow. to find me out there because you understand these were emerging markets for self-development, you know, South America, oh, wow. Africa. So I had this huge following in Africa and you know, the, uh, what was it? Africa, there's a NBC version of their, you know, NBC out there. They have their, and uh, one of their big hosts was a huge fan of mine. And he was like, I'm going to fly you out. I want you to be on my show out here. I had, you know, these people, it's incredible stories I used to get from Africa, man. They would save a week's worth of their, you know, paycheck to buy my book because that's how, you know, the, 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 the currency exchange, you know, sure, they're, yeah. so they're spending a yeah. week worth of salary. But here's what was unbelievable. I had somebody message me and she goes, you've changed my life in 2013. I'm in Ghana and uh, I haven't been able to find your account since, you know, for years because they deleted wow. it. So there's wow. this whole group of people that will never. You were shadow banned. Still am. They. Well, yeah, but I mean, you were you were you were permanently deleted. But before correct. that, you were shadow banned, where nobody could find you. Correct. And then after yeah. that, and since then, it's even worse. Um. So I just had this huge group of people that were, you know, you you have a relationship with an audience, and especially as uh, tangible as I am on social media, you know, I mean, literally, you're talking about answer, answering anywhere from. 10 to 20,000 DMs in the course of, you know, a, a standard year helping people, giving advice, and all of them are gone. So those relationships are severed. And then with the new algorithms they put into place, they're severed forever. And so, yeah. Because yeah, they can't find you again. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. deleted and gone. And then uh, since that time, you know, they've uh, taken me out a few more times. And I've got my theories behind this. I have an idea of how they're doing it. It's just it's just a shame because it doesn't work anymore. It works if you're still in that paradigm. It doesn't work once you step out of it. And yeah, talk about that a little bit. Uh, how did, how did getting banned so many times from Twitter teach you how their algorithms actually work? How how they operate well, behind the scenes? You know what it is, Jeff. Is is the first time they deleted me, man. It it took me a week to really wrap my head around it. I was so devastated because I knew I had had. You know, from a monetary standpoint, this was an expensive Twitter account. I had spent years building it. Um, sure. You had a lot invested. Yeah. Well, and they just nuked it. And it was just like, nope, you're gone. And and it really like threw me off. Um, the second time they deleted it, uh, I wasn't 
rattled as much. It still was like, oh my gosh, you know, where are we at on this? Um, the third time they deleted two accounts because had, I had a Dilly Show account and then I had my personal account. They nuked both simultaneously. Uh, wow. Even though one of them was inactive and not tweeting, it was just sitting there. They nuked both. Um, wow. Yeah. So, uh, and, and so you didn't, it, it wasn't active and you weren't tweeting. So you couldn't possibly have violated terms of service. No, no, no. That was a hit job, man. You know what they did? They deleted me. And within, <laughs> this is a crazy story. Within 30 minutes of me being deleted, there was an article uh, on the Right Wing Watch website uh, citing why I was deleted and what accounts were deleted. No, within 30 minutes. And here's the unbelievable part. Right Wing Watch had the article published before I had even received an email or anything from Twitter telling me that I had been deleted. You're kidding. That Well, that goes to show they are working Correct. behind the scenes together. So that was the coordination. That's amazing. Yeah, so they nuked me. Um, and then in the same month, you know, I, I mean, this is crazy. This was just August of last year. They nuked those two accounts, published the article as a hit job, smear job that I was spreading uh, fake news and something else. And then um, I was like, wow, and I reacted. I was like, okay, I got to, you know, do some things a little differently. I got to, you know, diversify. I created a Patreon account, immediately got 450 uh, Patreons, you know, that were all putting their yeah. money in or patrons, yep. I guess. And, yep. uh, <laughs> three weeks later, Patreon sends me an email. You will not be uh, eligible to use this service any longer. We've determined that you are uh, spreading fake news. I'm like, I'm under the entertainment category. I do a lot of jokes. They're like, you're done, gone. Here's so did they ever cite any specific examples of fake news or hate speech or anything like that? Uh, no, they cited the right wing watch article. So r- what which, happened which was didn't, also didn't cite no, anything. Right. No. So yeah. what right wing watch did was they contacted Patreon and then let them know that I was on their their website, and then Patreon nuked me. So that's wow. So so that this this reveals something bigger than just you being deleted. This is an active campaign by leftist organizations yeah. to destroy people's lives. Correct, because they they're trying to cut off your money supply. Because they know if you can't make money and you can't take care of your family, especially if you're conservative, they know. You'll you'll abandon the cause because you've got to be responsible. You got to go back to doing what what puts food on the table. And so right. they try to go after the most obvious things, which is your finances. And that was their attempt. And this is where, you know, I'm just smarter than these guys. These Silicon Valley guys are just <laughs> they're not smart. They they think they're smart, but they're a bunch of dorks. And the truth is that what they want the average American to think is once you're deleted on social media, that you stop existing. And I was one of the. Well, and they live in such a bubble, too, right? They have no idea how other people think. And they think that everybody agrees with them when they do this stuff. Correct. Well, and and for them also, the the end, uh, you know, the the, the end always justifies the means. So they're just going to do whatever they need to do, break their own rules, uh, do. I mean, this is illegal behavior. I mean, you're now, you've got multiple companies, these are corporations that are, you know, contacting one another. You've got a media yeah, organization, right? They're conspiring. It, it is an actual conspiracy, right? It's a legitimate conspiracy. You've got a social media company coordinating with a, uh, a, a, you know, donation, you know, Patreon, where obviously I'm providing content. There's absolutely no justification. It's not like I'm just sitting there collecting money for no reason. There's, I'm giving a ton of value and there's an exchange happening. So they nuke me there because of the request from, from right wing watch, a media company who's in, you know, in bed with Twitter. I mean, it was, pretty amazing so what i figured out though is where i was going with that is once you just realize that your voice matters and that what matters more than anything is staying in the fight not your twitter followers 
not, you know, how many times you get deleted. Your voice is what matters. You just keep doing it. And what separated me, I think, from a lot of other social media people that have been nuked, I am, I'm always on at 12 p.m. Eastern. And like I've told people, they deleted my Periscope accounts. They deleted, they deleted three of my Periscope accounts. Oh, they did? Accounts. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. They've deleted three of my Periscope accounts and, and deleted uh, probably somewhere around three or 400 shows that are just gone. Wow. Wow. Gone. So they, they've continued to do this. What their problem is, is I am as consistent as the sunrise. And everybody on social media knows at 12 p.m. Eastern, the Dilly Show is going to be on. Whether it's on one Periscope or another, he's going to pop up somewhere. <laughs> and that's where they couldn't overcome that, which is a schedule and the fact that I will find a place to broadcast from on the internet. Like there's going to be a Periscope account. I've got enough friends in, in social media that have larger accounts that I can latch on to and do a broadcast here and there. Um, you know, so that's where I kind of decentralized myself. And in doing so, my follower count kind of became irrelevant to me. I don't care about it. Um, and a lot of the, you know, they can keep whacking the accounts. All it does is make me more of a martyr for the, for the Trump movement, because I'm like, you've taken me out now and none of them are for legitimate reasons. It's all been garbage and harassment. It's all been total nonsense. One time, my second account, they deleted me because I literally was advocating for people to invest more time in reaching out to friends and family members who are quote trans. And I was citing uh, suicide statistics in that community. And I said, look, yeah, you know, yeah. it's the highest suicides uh, rate among any specific group. 43% uh, kill themselves. If you've got friends or family who are currently living a trans lifestyle, please help them. This is not a lifestyle. It is a mental health issue. And boom, deleted the whole account. Gone. Yeah, no, that's that's the third rail that the, the all these tech companies have, have identified. You can't even talk about trans people unless it's 100% in support of their lifestyle. And, and, and what was odd, too, was the way that I was framing my dialogue was citing empirical data. and right. then And then pairing it with empathy and it still got me right. related. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, you're reaching out to somebody not to say, uh, not even to say change your lifestyle, just say, I'll be there to support right. you. And, and I know that this is difficult for you. Right. That kind of and thing. what they yeah. tried to say was that it was targeted harassment of a group of people oh and um, threat. Oh, it was also threatening violence. That's what they cited. Threatening violence against a group of people is what, what? they cited. So, I mean, they can't even, they, at this point, their reasonings and rationale for why they delete people isn't even, they, they know it's nonsense. They know it's arbitrary. It doesn't even matter. Um, all they care about is having an excuse to take, uh, you know, people off of social media that are good at writing, good at communicating. That's their biggest challenge. And that's where they were like, I think that's what they figured out with me was this guy's a problem because going back to the election, I had influenced thousands of Democrats to vote for Trump. Because right. of my the fact that I was not considered right wing. I was considered a guy that just tells the truth and he's right down the middle. And I think Twitter <coughs> identified myself and others like that who have that persuasive writing style on Twitter uh, and, and pair that you know humor and fact. And they, they recognize these are the, the accounts that are a major threat uh, to what's going on, especially when they have their names behind them. It's one thing if they're anonymous, um, there's a credibility issue t- typically. But when there's a name and a picture of somebody and they're an established, they're a real human, that's a problem for Twitter because now you're overcoming a ton of these objectives, which is Russian bot, you know, uh, white supremacist, all of those things go out the window 
when you're using your real name and you got a picture and you're obviously very obviously, you know, I'm an author, I'm a speaker. I got this. And, you know, and you're not, you're not beholden to the typical pressure points that they no. place on, you know, like uh, they'll go to your job or they'll dox That's you or right. whatever. You, you're not, uh, you're not uh, prone to yeah. uh, I was like laying the, down on that. Yeah, I was like the broke Donald Trump, dude. It was the same thing. Like I wasn't owned by anybody. I was just like, well, you can't get me fired and you can't really take much money off my plate. Cause at that point, you know, 2015, 2016, I'm not making very much money. So it's like, what are you going to do? Um, and then, yeah. and then, you know, oddly enough, um, the more I fought back and have fought back against social media uh, censorship, the bigger and more influential my show has gotten and my voice has gotten and so much. So yeah. That- talk about that because it, it, we talked about this before we started the, the show here, yeah. but there's a whole method to this madness, right. Of, of, you know, uh, getting, uh, getting whacked and then, yeah. uh, uh, finding ways to uh, expand your audience, even the, even after you get whacked. Well, and what they don't, what they really underestimate is a few things. One humor goes a long ways. Um, consistency goes a long ways and loyalty goes a long ways. And so they whacked me in August and, uh, had a new account, you know, the next day. Um, actually that one was pretty impressive, man. I added 30,000 followers in a 24 hour period. Wow. <laughs> so I think that was like a shot across the bow. They were like, holy crap. Um, yeah. so between August and November, that account adds, you know, I had 50,000 followers. Um, <laughs> and that's basically by, uh, getting back in contact with people that were following you before. Not really. So it was just, no? you know, a few disbursement points, you know, I, uh, my network goes, Oh, Dilly's yeah. here. Cause everybody, went, oh, gotcha. this, they're clamoring. Okay. They're yeah. going, where is he? Here he is. And then it goes viral in its own way. Um, it gets picked up. And I mean, that account, that one I knew was going to get whacked quick because Don Jr. Followed me. <laughs> and, oh, boy. and once Don Jr. <laughs> followed me and started retweeting myself and my fiance, I was like, oh no. Cause I knew. And, and you know, what's really funny, Jeff, you know, who got me deleted was Michael Avenatti. Cause I was making fun of him. And oh, Don Jr. retweeted it and it got oh, obviously boy. once Don Jr. retweeted it, Avenatti saw it because the amount of notifications he was probably getting. And of course, he's got a, a hotline directly to right wing. That's that, right? right. So then Avenatti yeah. is like triggered and uh, reports like boy, he, he really landed on his feet, right? Yeah, well, I, I feel pretty good about it now, knowing like I slept in my bed and he slept in El Chapo's cell last night. So <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, how'd that work out, bro? Maybe two months ago when you got my account deleted, you should have been working on a defense. Like, talk right. about not having your priorities straight. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, dude, you spent how much time reporting my tweets? You could have been coming up with something to stay out of prison. <laughs> so yeah so he's well, it, it's a, it's again it's the same attitude right it's right. they're they're untouchable because you know they're, they're right and they don't even consider the the possibilities that they could be found guilty correct well and the other thing is like here's the real trick to this whole psyop that we call social media and we call politics in 2020 the only rule to the game is stay on the field that's what nobody understands don't let them uh you know disenfranchise you oh i had that account I had so many friends and now they're gone don't none of that just Come right back, respond, re- keep tweeting, keep putting out the truth, keep pushing out the, the president's message. It doesn't matter. The follower counts don't matter. None of that matters. The interact being interactive in the, your um, passion and in your uh, resilience is what matters. And so that's what I figured out. That's what I ultimately figured out is if you stay on the field, you win. It's just a game. It's just a war of attrition. And uh, most people let it disenfranchise them. I'm really sad. There's a few people that ran off and it's just like, man, why'd you run? You know, Laura Loomer ran. She could have came back. She ran. 
Uh, mm. Alex Jones, he ran, could have came back. You know, back in the day, Milo Yiannopoulos ran. It's like, dude. And I think some of them, they were so pissed that they lost their, you know, they had, they were verified. They had a million followers and they're like, I'm not rebuilding it. But it's the wrong attitude. Totally the wrong attitude. The right attitude is you just come back and go, I don't care. Fine. I'm at zero. Now what? I'm still me. Yeah. I'm still funny. You, you still, still have people that want to hear from you. That's right. So, still interesting. Yeah. Still put out the content. And so, uh, yeah, you know, we did that and uh, we've continued to do that. And we've got a show that's a very traditional format. So I'm not doing anything that is outside the box as far as uh, monetization goes. I, I run a sponsored show, no different than any other television show. It's like this, this broadcast brought to you by, and yeah, we, yeah. you know, we call it doing MAGA commerce. Um, <laughs> Something where we have sponsors and, and my sponsors know ahead of time, look, you're going to be sponsoring a show that is literally uh, ground zero for new media, you know, attacks like they're going to be coming after you. Uh, you may potentially get emails or have issues, but I deal with nothing but entrepreneurs. So they're all like, well, I don't care. I love the president. Um, and so, we, you know, I, I tell everybody it's a closed circle. It's it's a MAGA sponsored show with a MAGA host, with a MAGA message, with MAGA consumers. And that's a closed circle. We don't have anything leaking out. None of that money ends up getting funneled back to the left or any of these leftist organizations or companies. And uh, people feel good about that. Well, let's let's talk about this because that's a, the, the the book that I wrote last year uh, behind the curtain inside the network of progressive billionaires and a campaign to undermine democracy. I, I tracked all that stuff, right? Is all these all these organizations that are arrayed against uh, uh, people on the right. And it's a vast Huge. network of, yeah, uh, all these organizations, these NGOs, these uh, foundations, these billionaires that fund all this stuff. Yep. You know, George Soros given $18 billion to his Open Society Foundation. Yep. I mean, there's so much money. It's, it's really, it, it is actually intimidating for a lot of folks to go up against a, a bulwark like that. Well, and that's what you realize, too, is like you're never going to be able to compete with that network uh, trying to change the minds. And this is what I figured out, Jeff, is like, I wrote off half the country. And I really did. I mean that. Like, economically, I went, I'm never going to get a cent from that group of people. And then I turned my entire attention. I said, but there's this 70 million or so people right here that absolutely love this. This They love this humor because the president's already uh, making softening them to it. So they're used to it, that raw, unfiltered humor. They love right. this, the political angle I'm coming from because uh, it's in line with the president of the United States. They love the enthusiasm and the um, the fact that I don't do a show that that uh, spends time on fear porn and like pessimism and stuff. Like they know what they're <laughs> going to get. Porn. Well, because like there's term. a lot of I, I call it pessimism uh, porn is what I call it on on. Uh, it's like you know it's like the clickbait articles that are like is sure, this what sure. brings Trump down? It's like no, nothing's yes. bringing Trump down. The end. Is this the flashpoint <laughs> to <laughs> Civil War too? Right, uh, that's right. And yeah, so like yeah, I don't yeah. I don't peddle that. I peddle something totally different, which is faith and which is. Uh, highlighting the the successes of this president, highlighting the hilarity of the left, uh, even of the yeah. deep state, a lot of the corruption. It's sick, but you if you could find humor in that and frame it that way, it makes it and that's a target rich environment, right? Well, and it makes it more palatable for your average consumer who goes, okay, these people are sick, they're demented, and but this is hilarious. Look at this guy, you know, he's stuttering or he fell down or something, and you know, and I'm making jokes about it. So, <laughs> you know, what I mean? or Joe Biden yesterday, I'm like, dude, he's malfunctioning sure. again. Like, yep. <laughs> why, 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 why? <laughs> So, yeah. So, I mean, it works. And, and that's where I, I just uh, and I and I try to teach my sponsors the same thing Forget just right off that other side. Don't worry about it. They're not going to buy your products. They weren't going to buy them anyway. Be yourself. Own what you are. And we will move 
your product. And when they write emails to complain about you, that uh, ignore them. Yeah, you just delete them. You just go, okay, huh, somebody else is mad. Yeah. But the reality right. is MAGA, um, I think, as a collective in the Trump supporting movement as a collective has gotten so smart and so good at this game. We have evolved as an as a organ, you know, as a group, as a collective, because you're seeing less disenfranchise, you know, disenfranchisement. You're you're seeing less fear of what President Trump is going to do next. N- now, finally, people are figuring out. They're like, dude, just trust Trump. He's got this. Because there's always yeah, you know, a counterpunch. I'll, I'll, yeah, right. Exactly. It, it, um, he's, he does a really good job of setting up the counterpunch. That's a great way of putting that. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, I wasn't the biggest uh, Trump supporter. I was actually a Cruz guy mm-hmm. in, the, in the primary. And um, uh, I was really nervous about a Trump yeah. presidency. But uh, the best part about what's happened over the last three years is the way he uses his Twitter account to lead everybody around by the nose. And and they take the bait every time, and it's hysterical. Well, and that's that's part of what's going on, and I think it's perfect because, you know, when you dig into it further, you realize that the you, you know the military views views online uh, cyber warfare is a legitimate field of of warfare now. It, it's been validated and verified. And mm-hmm. when you realize what you realize is, and they used Twitter for example, uh, they he cites it. You know, there's there's a video, it's really good video with one of the generals that's talking about this. And he cites the fact that you've got, you know, like he's like talking about, okay, we can do all the things that we do militarily in the traditional sense, but the cyber domain allows us to actually stop a war before it ever even gets off the ground because you can disenfranchise or deflect or or, uh, prevent that by speaking to the people in that country. Which you see, right? Trump did that just a couple of weeks ago with Iran. He's saying to the Iranian people, "You're not my enemy. I don't want to hurt you. I want to free you." And there is nobody on planet Earth that's going to reject a message of "We don't want you as enemies. We want to see you flourish. We want to see you wealthy. We want to see you free." No one. Well, and that reminds me of the the Babylon Bee article that came out shortly after that, where the headline was. Uh, Trump does something right, but the left rejects it anyway because it was Trump. Correct, and that's where they're at right now. That's where how far they've gone down that that uh, well, and they can't get out of it. And I think, like you said, going back to what you were saying as a Cruz supporter, this is what they've really underestimated. Is someone like yourself who's like, okay, I'm a Cruz guy. I'm a little bit terrified of this guy because he's a little bit of a cowboy, uh, but I'm definitely not going to vote Hillary because uh, you know that's <laughs> clear. It ain't happening, yeah. right? But now look what happens in three years. You go from, I don't know what to think of him to, okay, this guy's making some moves to year two. You're like, dude, he's crushing these people. Year three, you're like, you can't stop him. <laughs> he's going to crush all of you. Like he's doing things that nobody thought possible. Well, the, the best part about it is he drags them out into the light and he yeah. makes them uh, fight on his terms. And, oh, and yeah. you know, we don't have Republicans that do that. Uh, but, you know, he, he drags them into his arena and just exposes them and lets lets people see who they really are. Absolutely. And one of the things, too, that I think doesn't get highlighted is President Trump's current, like right now, like his current term and his, God willing, another term after this, what it will do to raise the quality of Republican representation we get cannot even be measured yet, Jeff. Like, that he has taught them how to fight. He has taught them a winning message. He's taught them how to campaign. I mean, he, there is so much there. Like, right. like even that's 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 the real advantage. It's not even the policy stuff exactly. as much, you know, because you, you can quibble about like the, the debt and, and right. um, fiscal issues that have not been resolved. But 
on on balance when you look at the tactics and the strategy. Yep. That's what's really important. Well, and he's putting on a clinic on how to deal with the media, how to use the media to help negotiate abroad, how to, you know, how to really he's teaching them how to use the military appropriately, how to keep people safe while still right. being effective. There's so much meat on that bone. And like even with like a Ted Cruz, and I think even if you sat down with him, he would tell you. Donald Trump's changed him a little bit as far as like what you would have got as a Ted Cruz supporter as a president compared to what, let's say, if Cruz runs again in 2028, the presidency that he would have had in 2016 versus what he could potentially have down the road. Those are completely opposite ends for him and the country. I think you end up like Trump's hit the reset button on a lot of things for the Republican Party. And it's a positive. It's a very positive thing. I think it. He also reframed a lot of these characters within the Republican Party, which was the ones that backed his agenda and backed the country are are being elevated. They're being like, I mean, they're being finally for the first time they got love, like legit love from Republicans and patriotic people. They're like, hey, man, thank you for doing what you're doing versus before where it was just business as usual. You're a rhino. We don't trust you. You're this. So I think you've got a lot of, you know, there's a lot of benefit there because it ends up. You know, these guys, I think to be a politician, you've got to have a certain amount of ego and they are concerned about their legacies. And I think what President Trump offers them is a chance to reframe the legacy that was was their career just by aligning themselves with what he's trying to do, the America first agenda. I think you've seen that with a lot of people, whether it's Mitch McConnell or Grassley or some of these others that, you know, maybe he that influences there. It's like, you know what? Or or Lindsey Graham. Uh, There's a few of these guys that have stepped up, I think. Uh, as a result of his leadership. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And then uh, he, he's also sort of forced out some of these wishy-washy Republicans who have oh, retired, yeah. you know, Je- Jeff Flake being chief among yeah. them. Right? Oh, yeah, uh, Flake, you got uh, got rid of him, got rid of Ryan, got rid of Corker, whole bunch of just yeah. terrible Republicans. Boy, Paul Ryan is the biggest disappointment of oh. my political career, you know, because he, he started out as a free market zealot and and a fighter, and he turned into a Bainerite, you know, and and down. Yep. I think he was somebody that, you know what though, man, they go to Washington and they get rich. That's what happens. They go there. And then all of a sudden their bread isn't being buttered by their constituents. It's being buttered by uh, donations and and foreign uh, entities. And it's being, you know, uh, influenced by the billionaire class. I mean, it's really sad what happens. I mean, you see, I think there's a lot of uh, people on both sides of the aisle that show up think thinking it's a certain way and uh within a matter of days they realize this is not how i thought this was going to go uh yeah that's the deep state there it, it, it all needs to be uh, uh exposed and and turned over but all right uh brendan dilly thanks for coming on the show uh, we're uh, about out of time here but uh i want to give you a chance to uh give a plug to your book give a plug to your uh, pay, uh periscope show and uh, your Twitter account before it gets banned. Yeah, absolutely. So you can uh, <laughs> you can find my book uh, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, any really any book retailer, or you can go into a store and ask for "Still Breathing: The Wisdom and Teachings of a Perfectly Flawed Man," or you can just ask for anything by Brendan Dilly. Uh, you can find my show weekdays Monday through Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern uh, at Periscope.tv forward slash The Real Hub Life. So it's Periscope.tv forward slash The Real Hub Life, or you can find me on Twitter for now. Dilly Show uh, at Dilly Show is my Twitter handle right now. All right. Thanks, Brendan Dilly. I really appreciate it. This was a, he- a heck of a lot of fun, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure, Jeff. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Curtain podcast. 
I want to thank my buddy Ryan Futch for providing me the theme song, I Am America, produced by Cass Anawati. Join us next week for another episode of Behind the Curtain with Jeff Reynolds.
like this podcast, the best way you can support it is by leaving a rating and subscribing. And don't forget to buy my book, Behind the Curtain, Inside the Network of Progressive Billionaires and Their Campaign to Undermine Democracy. Now it's on to my second interview with Justin Brecht of the Oregon Senate Republicans. All right, welcome into the Behind the Curtain podcast with Jeff Reynolds. I'm your host, Jeff Reynolds, and I have a special guest, a repeat guest, actually. Uh, anytime we want to look at the Oregon legislature and uh, all the bad deeds that they're committing, I bring this guy on, Justin Brecht, who is a policy analyst for the Senate Republican Caucus here in Oregon. Uh, Justin, welcome in. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, so uh, let's let's jump right into it. Uh, what are the worst bills you're seeing that the uh, Democrat supermajorities in both houses are trying to pass this short session? Uh, well, in this short session, uh, I think the one that is the most egregious by far is cap, cap and trade. You've got the cap and trade. You've got um, <clears throat> you've got the gun bills that are coming. Those are absolutely horrible. Um, those are probably at the tip of tip of it all. And there's a, there's multiple other ones that have to do with um, land, some land use uh, coming out of environment and natural resources. Uh, Oh, you know, I mean, but those are those are right at the top of top of the list there. Okay, I actually haven't heard of those uh, land use bills. Uh, What are they trying to uh, do now? Well, um, so there's recently you might have might have seen there's there's a there was a lawsuit that the counties won recently against the state because back i think in the 30s the there was fires and the counties you know on these lands in the forest and the counties entered into agreement with the state that the state would manage <clears throat> manage these lands for the greatest economic value possible and then that money some of it would go to the state for its management services and then the a whole bunch of it would go to uh, schools in those counties where the state was managing that that forest land. Right. Well, in the nineties, in the nineties, you know, early 80, late eighties, the the environment, you know, the environmentalists really started taking off, and they started making administrative rules through our governors and how that land would be managed. And so they they started locking up lands that you know that the environmentalists demanded no, but you know you do nothing with, and um, so that broke the contract they had way back you know back in the 30s, and so they'd been breaking this contract for the last uh, you know 30 years. Right. Yeah, it, it was a yeah, long yeah. time, yeah. <laughs> and so they won, and I think it was uh, one. Point two billion dollars that that the counties won, Um, and so um, that's kind of the back back story to the bill that they're introducing, and that has to do with um, you know it wants to actually transfer lands um, again to different agencies within the state government. And have them do different managements, and the counties, you know, they they hate it for multiple reasons. And they were promised a, a work group in the interim by the Democrats. Never had one, you know. The list goes on, and so 
that one is something to watch out for. And the other thing about a lot of the bills, <clears throat> matter of fact, uh, and the listeners should know that Monday is when all the bills um, come on, on online. Right. That's January 27th. That's right. And so that's a good good time to look at these because you only have a week before the session starts to even look at these. And there's well over 500 bills. So, and then, and then that's not including a lot of these bills that they're putting are, are just the, the, you know, we call them placeholder bills where, you know, the bill in it, it says, you know, related to, um, you know, crime. And then it just says there will be a study on crime. And that's what the bill says when it first drops. And then you think, you know, you look at it and you think, no, it's, it's a study. Sure. Uh, but what they do is then they amend that. You know, they just completely gut, we gut and stuff. They take out yep. all the study and then they drop in, you know, it's related to crime. Therefore, we can put something with firearm legislation in it, an amendment. And that's important because during the short session, you can drop an amendment an hour before the committee. And that amendment could be 50 pages. And, and they've done this before. Sure. And sure. so you trying to keep up with that and go through it is is impossible it, i mean that i mean and that's just impossible i don't care how fast you can read uh you <laughs> you, you cannot you can't you can't and that's how your state's being run right yeah so, no it's, so, so and then let's let's talk about that uh short session real quick and we'll talk more about the specific bills that are coming down the pike but um, the short session was sold to us several years ago as a way to fix budgetary problems uh, in between uh, regular sessions because we used to, used to only meet biennially. And now we've got this short session, and it actually seems like they're they're more capable of doing bad stuff in the short session because it's uh, constitutionally required to uh, end in 35 days. And so they, they can gut and stuff these bills. They can jam them through with no time to debate, no time to read the bills and, and just uh, jam them through uh, without cooperation, especially if you've got a supermajority in both houses like the Democrats have right now. Right. So it, it all seems to me like this is more ripe for abuse than a regular session. Uh, it abs- absolutely. That's absolutely right. Um and, uh, you know, when voters passed in uh, 2010, Measure 71, uh, that gave the legislature to meet during these uh, in, the, in the short sessions, you know, it was at the, you know, right at the end of the Great Recession. And <clears throat> so they had they, they put forward decent arguments, you know, we need to do this. Well, one of their arguments, too, it wasn't just uh, we're all doing this for budgets and this and that. One of the one of the things that they were, if you go back and watch the committees uh, during that time uh, for this, you know, the idea was, well, if we're going to create a short session, why don't we lower the amount of the long session by a month or two? <laughs> you know? And so, they, of course, they never did that. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, and 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 you go back and look at the voters' pamphlet statement, and Kate Brown was in charge of this at the time. You know, it says you know uh, the short session will only uh, the revenue, you know, the fiscal that taxpayers will have to pay to have a short session for a month will be no more than one hundred thousand dollars. 
uh, <laughs> what? Oh, oh, that certainly wasn't the case. It was more like five, it's been more like five times that it just just for spending on you know having having them come there. But then I mean the amount of bills and new taxes and all this that you you if you add that up, it, it's astronomical. I mean it's the short sure. session has been a real. Uh, if anything, it's done more to hurt Oregonians than help with budget issues and simple. Yeah, it was, it, it was a real Trojan horse. I mean, they, they sold uh, sold us a bill of goods and then just did whatever they wanted with it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I yep. I mean, that's that, and that's where we are today. Yeah. So um, there, there seems to be some rumblings about uh, ending the short session or repealing that that sure. measure. Is that uh, something that could go anywhere? Uh, you know, that is um, Senator Thatcher. She introduced a bill to uh, end the short session. You know, and it, it would have to pass both the House and the Senate, and then it would get referred to the voters. And I, I know, I don't think the Democrats are. Um, looking to get rid of any of their power <laughs> at, at this point in time. Doesn't seem like it. <laughs> but but I think I think the goal uh, was to at least put that bill out there, get people to talk about it and what it has cost them. Um, and so that is what Senator Thatcher, I think, you know, you introduce these bills. You, sometimes you introduce bills just not because you, you know, they're going to pass. You just want people to have a conversation about them. Right. right. Do the sort of uh, short term civics lesson on why the heck are we doing this and uh, do we still have to continue doing it? Right. Yep. Yeah. All right. So let's let's talk about uh, the specific bills that are coming out. Um, the last session in 2019, the long session, the constitutional session, uh, they, they had uh, gun bills. They had cap and trade. They had the vaccine bills. There were two walkouts by Senate Republicans that uh, denied quorum so that they could not actually uh, pass those bills. Uh, and, and a lot of the, the supermajority really ended up uh, uh, not looking good. Uh, they they'd made so many promises on their pro- progressive goals. And they weren't able to do it, even though they have a supermajority and uh, a Democrat in the uh, governor's chair. So uh, w- let's talk, first of all, cap and trade. W- what are they going to do with that? How does it does it differ substantively from the cap and trade bill that was introduced in the last session? And what's going to happen when they bring it to the floor? Sure. So a couple things, um, you know, that the Democrats and you read in the papers that, you know, they say they've, they've made all kinds of changes to it. And, and um, that's just not true. It's, it's a matter of fact, it's demonstrably not true. So the biggest, the biggest one I think people will hear the most is that they're going to, they keep saying, well, and the media keeps repeating it too, uh, without, you know, unquestioningly, repeats it and it's that they they got rid of um uh rural oregon gas prices that will increase um but that so it's in the bill as a matter of fact it's in section 13 of the bill and what it says is um it does try to do that. It tries to distinguish rural from the metropolitan areas of the gas increases. And but what they're not telling you is that uh, gas and your fuel that you put in your car and diesel, this is all getting imported a- into the state. And so you, uh, 
the program will tax at importation the gas already. <laughs> so, so before it even goes to the places that it goes to in rural Oregon, it's already been taxed. Right. And what make yeah. what makes that what makes that super dangerous? Even and this is what ma- so the same thing that they're praising as the best thing in the world for rural Oregon is actually the reason why this bill is even worse. Because if they can't figure out how to distinguish that gas and importation and tax and where it goes to rural Oregon. In the bill, unlike the other one, this bill makes sure that only the people who have opted in in the bill, which are only the metropolitan city areas for this gas increase, they're the only ones who get the money. So, wow. so, so you if you if rural Oregon, if they can't figure out the how to you know distinguish the gas after it's already been taxed at importation under this under this plan, then you're going to have rural Oregon subsidizing the metropolitan areas with higher gas prices and none of them and none of the money goes to them now now let's just just for uh, you know for conversation let's say that uh, DEQ and ODOT they can figure out how to how to separate rural from metropolitan gas and let's say that uh, rural Oregon isn't going to isn't paying um, you know, higher gas prices. Let's just say that 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 actually can work. And I think a lot of us are skeptical that it 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 can. It won't matter. It won't matter by 2025. Um, they also put in that same section 13 what that tries to deal with this is that by 2025, any city and zip code within their city and uh, who has 10 million gallons or more delivered to the tanks with within that zip code uh, per year will be automatically included into this bill uh, with higher gas prices. So in the, that means, so, so how many, how many cities in, in their zip codes, you know, get 10 million gallons or more annually? Well, according to DEQ, 87% of all Oregon. it won't matter by 2025 they're still going to have higher gas and 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 in that in that instance it'll be even it'll be much more um punitive to them that that wait until 25 2025 as well because every year this 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 program is pegged to increase costs every single year based on an annual cap decline so you if under the rosiest circumstances these cities can can go until 2025 all of a sudden they're going to hit a cliff that goes right down to the 2025 gas price increases so you same thing with and that's actually the problem with all all these people who you know these special special interest and politically connected people to the democrats who are getting these carve outs for you know till 2025 till 2026 till 2030 by the time that they all run out if they don't get extensions to them which is most like the most likely scenario and the average oregonian doesn't have that they if they can't get them those those deep dives on those on that annual cap decline for those increase in costs for natural gas for electricity for fuel uh you name it uh it's going to be steep and brutal 
and insanely brutal and cost increases. And that, and then yeah. that, and then that just trickles down to everything else in your life, fuel costs associated with everything, uh, you know, the restaurants, the food you buy, everything. So right, right. We saw this with the with Measure sixty six and sixty seven, and then also with Measure uh, I think it was ninety seven, where you have this layering effect of this of this corporate tax, right? And and this would be that on steroids. Yeah, yeah. It's and and they still, you know, they still. So so that's the other bill that they're they've got to deal with is making fixes to their recent backdoor sales tax. <laughs> you know, because it's a, it's such a nightmare of a plan, and you can already see people adding on to their receipts. Hey, this is the cat tax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, costs because it, it's it's so ridiculous, and they don't they the the rulemaking. I think Department of Revenue went around. They did went around the state to do rulemaking and asked people, you know, what their concerns were to try to make rules. And it's just a nightmare because you can't. There's businesses for all the Democrats talk of, you know, equity and diversity. They st- can't seem to understand how different and uh, diverse businesses are in, in the state. And, and, you know, each business. Well, they're all evil, though. So that's all that really matters. <laughs> right. So so that's been a huge, huge problem with that. But you're absolutely right. This 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 uh, cap and trade bill has um, it, it, it will call for all kinds of increases just based on how it's set up for sure. Yeah. Well, so that'll be fun. Um, what else we got going on? I, I have heard that there, uh, there may be a new vaccine bill coming down the pike. Is that something that uh, is on your radar? You know, I haven't seen one and I, it's been odd that I haven't heard about any yet i've heard people say they think that one's coming and i haven't seen it and i don't know how much the appetite of democrats is to have hundreds and hundreds of mothers down there at the capitol every (laughs) single day again and so i uh which they should be anyway, if they, you know, because the Democrats could always shove this into an amendment, you know, that the vaccine, sure, sure. because that, that just like I was saying earlier, you know, they'll make something bill related to health care right. and, and then they'll shove an amendment in it. And you won't know about that amendment until an hour before the committee. So so I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Democrats did try to do it that way and make it less uh you know, publicized. So I, I would definitely watch out for that, but, I, but I haven't seen them blatantly talk about it. So um, what other tactics are available to the uh, Republicans in the super minority other than a walkout to deny quorum? Uh, I know last session they, in the house side, they participated in this slowdown where, you know, they invoked House rules where they had to read every bill in its entirety and uh, really tried to slow things down as much as possible so that uh, they could sort of run out the clock. Is that mm-hmm. something that's available uh, this session or, or what, yeah. what else can they do? I think, yeah, I think I think that's all options here on the table. That's what uh, the Senate Minority Leader, Senator uh, Baertrigger, has said over and over again when asked about it is, you know, all options are on the table. So. Good. So, 
because they they continue to just flat out refuse to work with the Republicans to get something that uh, we would agree to. Right, and that's you know that's that's their that's and you know that's this is the Democrats have found that it's it's nice to say hey let's have a work group during the interim session to see if we can't work on this, and then you go to these things and they don't take anything you say into account. I mean, for, for heaven's sakes, we had over a hundred amendments in the last cap and trade bill, you know, that didn't, didn't go anywhere. I mean, and seriously in any, in any substantive way. And so, uh, but, but their, their idea there is, Hey, we invited them. We yeah, have, right. We're yeah. having a conversation. Look how, look how, you know, wonderful we are to invite the Republicans to have a, have a conversation and you're not having a conversation when you're only, you know, you're. When it's them, one way, right? And, and, it's, yeah. it's, 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 they're dictating terms. And not in, and, and threatening you. Like, yeah. so, and so like, that's what they saw last time is they threat, they threaten you. So they'll say, well, we're going to, if you guys do this, we're going to hold funds from, from uh, you know your districts, or we're going to chain you to your desks. That's what they told Boquist. So, <laughs> so, so, I, I, but I mean, that's where it is. So they, the the idea that they're sitting there being some just listening, you know, Democrat majority that has you know wants to hear what you have to say is 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 absolute nonsense. So. Yeah. Well, we we see over and over again that uh, uh, it's all just, you know, placating and, and trying to get you off their back, not actually uh, dealing with you in, in good faith. So uh, they don't, don't want to have any Republican input if they can avoid it at all. Yeah. And then to your other question about how, how it, um, uh, you know, what kind of strategy there is available in a minority that, you know, there's not too much, but um, there is, it depends on what the Democrats do. And so we saw that they came out with their committee's assignments, um, this week, and that's important, um, because it matters what committees these bills get assigned to. So last session, for example, they assigned the cap and trade bill. They set up a joint committee. Uh, it was called the joint carbon production committee and that's where the cap and trade went through and now and this time they haven't set that up and so that indicates that it's most likely going to go to the policy committee in environment and natural resources now by the way there's two cap and trade bills oh i didn't know that yeah so they uh so there's one in the house that tina kotek did and then there's the one that's gotten all the media attention um uh, in the senate <clears throat> and so so but the, but the the kind of committees that these bills go to matter so in the joint committee you cannot um there's no timeline there's no timeline the bill can go all the way up to the last you know day or two and then go to the house chamber or the in the senate chamber and be passed whereas what they have right now uh, and there and you can't file a minority report which in a minority report in a joint in a joint committee, and that's a, a way to slow slow. Yeah, the I didn't know down. that actually. Yeah, and so um, in 
and what it's looking like is this the bill is going to go through the normal process that people are kind of used to and that's it goes into an, the environment and natural resources committee and from there it will be debated and they have until february it's the second week to get it out of that committee so you're looking yeah, yeah you're looking at you are literally looking at two weeks and they have to have that cap and trade bill passed out of committee Wow. Okay. So that gives you a time time. So that so now the timelines and time you know the the battle battle lines and time frames here are drawn once they once we know and we won't know where these bills actually go until the president assigns them to the committees, but they haven't set up a joint carbon committee. Now what could happen is is it goes and gets passed out of the Environment and Natural Resources Committee. Then it goes to the full Ways and Means. And if, if it gets sent to the Ways and Means Committee, then even if you did a minority report in the Environment and Natural Resources, your minority report gets dropped off. Like, it won't even be heard anymore in on the floor debate. So, <clears throat> so there's a couple different ways that the Democrats could go about to uh, – and then after that, then it doesn't have to go through a House committee. So as soon as it goes to a joint committee, it doesn't have to go through uh, a House committee. It can just go straight to their floor. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So yeah, and that's I think that was one of the, their their appeals to having a joint committee is because there weren't any timelines or timeframes for it to pass. But gotcha. it, so, yeah. So the bottom line is they're they're just trying to jam this through as fast as they can, having uh, learned their lesson from the last session. Maybe, uh, you know, I, I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't put it in a joint committee because then it, it doesn't have, they don't, they won't have that timelines, uh, that they did before and they can still run it through. So I, I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking there with that, uh, necessarily, except that it absolutely must be passed within the first two weeks. I see. Okay. All right. So what are the other bills? Uh, we're looking at um, some nasty gun bills. We're looking at uh, what else? The land use bills. The um, uh, what, Let's talk about the gun bills real quick. Uh, what are those going to look like? Um, well, the gun bills, um, th- there's going to be two gun bills. Or at least that we know of that the Democrats are looking to pass. And so those will come through your judiciary committees. And the one that will go through the House Judiciary Committee first is the one that's dealing with locking up all your firearms continuously at all times, um, unless you're carrying it um, or it's within a certain reach uh, that you can secure it. And so the, the most egregious part of that, too, is that they what they've done is that if someone steals your gun or you've invited people over to your house and, you know, somebody brings a friend and they steal your firearm, the Democrats are putting strict liability standards on you for the owner. Somebody just stole your private property, your gun, your firearm, and they go out and then they uh, rob a store or they go out and injure somebody with your firearm, you're now liable for um, for any damages, yeah. uh, which is, which is you are putting 
you know, the responsibility of someone else's actions on a lawfully abiding firearm gun owner. Yeah, that's no different than uh, allowing somebody to sue the gun manufacturer because uh, a crime was committed with a gun. That's right. And 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 it's it it penalizes people. So if and, and, you know, God forbid um, somebody's child, you know, gets in somehow gets into their their parents uh, bedroom or something and they they say they just even unbolt with, you know, bolt cutters and they cut off, you know, the weak little, uh, I think all guns come with some cable lock. Right. Yeah. They cut it off. They cut it off and then they shoot themselves and kill themselves. And, um, you know, you, they've put it in there too, that you, those, this poor mother and father are also going to have to have legal battles because they're going to have be charged with a crime. Right. Which is unconscionable. I mean, you, you're talking about somebody who just lost their kid, and you. I mean, that, I, I can't think of anything worse that could possibly happen to somebody in their lifetime. And then sure. the yeah. Democrats want to drag those same people through a bunch of legal issues. At the same time, it's unconscionable to me that they would do that. And and the real agenda to me here is part of it is the trial attorneys are loving it because they get to make money off of somebody suing a lawful firearm owner for somebody else's actions. And, and then the, another one's going to – the other guy's going to need a defense lawyer, so there's two lawyers getting paid there. That's right. And then the insurance companies are going to love it and start jumping on this with the Democrats because – the, it's not in the bill, but this is the, this is where they're headed. Is is requiring everybody to have firearm owners insurance? If you have a gun, you have to have insurance for your firearm, and that just makes the. And the, I can't imagine the premiums on this once the trial attorneys get to this. And there's no sure. limits to you know. So that is where this is headed, and you can tell that the Democrats goal here is to just make it so expensive to own a firearm. It's right. be untenable to own one. Yeah, no, that's, and, and uh, they know that this is an un- unconstitutional infringement. They know that it would not stand up to uh, uh, legal scrutiny, but they are also counting on the fact that it would take years to wind its way through the courts for any affected party. And it would take a lot of money. It would be prohibitive for a lot of gun owners to be able to uh, pursue the legal challenge and win back their rights. That's right. Yep. That's absolutely true. Right. So, so that, and so that, there you go. That, that's one of them. <laughs> yeah. <I'm great. laughs> that is, uh, the, uh, the other one, and I haven't, it hasn't posted yet, so I haven't seen the details of it, but it will be the one coming through the Senate Judiciary, supposedly. And um, it is trying to get rid of the state preemption uh, for making laws on firearms. And what that in normal speak means is that your local you know, town and city and any type of public building, schools, anybody can make their own rules for right. firearms and so that is extraordinarily uh dangerous uh it's it's just dangerous um and i mean if i'm if i'm a chl holder and i'm i'm just driving through a town am i going to be in trouble you know i've got it and my my town says i can perfectly carry with a chl what about that other town who says i can't and i'm just driving through 
So and there's no consistency to this this uh, state preemption uh, right. usage because uh, back in the day when they uh, created the statewide smoking ban in public buildings, they they made it so that local towns couldn't preempt that. You know, they they specifically made that part of the law, and now now they're doing the opposite with this gun bill. So it's just whatever is most convenient for them at the time. The rule of law be damned. That's right. Yep, that's absolutely true. So, so that is the those are the two gun bills, the main gun bills that are coming through. Uh, they did try to slip a, another gun bill into a transportation bill. <laughs> uh, wow, you know, and um, that one would make uh, any airport over a million passengers per year could um, uh, restrict firearms you know when you come to your family first of all the only airport uh, that has a million or more passengers a year is pdx right i think i think there's two that are coming close to it in oregon but pdx is by far that's the only one that reaches that level and so the bill would get rid of your affirmative defense if you're a chl holder uh, and you, and you know, you're going to pick up a loved one at the airport, and you have your CHL on you in the parking lot area, and somebody sees, you know, your pant leg ruffles up, and they see, you know, your concealed weapon on your ankle, and they go and tell the police, and the police come and say, hey, do you have a firearm on you? And you say yes, and they say, well, too bad, and you say, well, I have a CHL, and they're going to say too bad, and then you go to court. And you say to the court, I've got a CHL hold, you know, a CHL, and I'm perfectly f- capable of carrying a firearm there. And then the judge will look at the law, and it, the law, if they passed it, would say you no longer have an affirmative defense for having a CHL in an airport terminal area that has a, mil- a thousand or uh, a million or more people coming through it a year. So, so that and, is- and what, what problem is that law trying to solve? Have there been a lot of mass shootings at PDX lately? <laughs> no, no. I think uh, if you talk to the port of Portland though, they'll tell you that um, at least, at least, more than once a week, somebody accidentally brings their firearm onto in their luggage uh, in their case, which I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they'll say. And so, therefore, they need to have the ability to define themselves as a public building to uh, be able to limit uh, uh, open carry. But what the, you know, which but that doesn't match what they what they actually wrote down in this transportation bill of all places. It's in section two to five of the. Uh, if you go to the Joint Transportation Committee and their meeting materials for their last uh, the last time they met, that just a few, like a week or two ago, you'll you'll see it in there. All right. Uh, anything else we need to uh, have on the radar? Uh, I, I mean, this is bad enough. Uh, anything else we've missed so far? Yeah, it, yeah, it's actually not a bill, but it it it, um, it matters. Um, uh, it it's what they do at the, towards the beginning is um, uh, you know rule changes. I think they tried to do that to uh, us last time because they they tried to fine us. They couldn't fine us. They didn't have the rules to do it. You have to have a quorum in order to pass something, and they never had a quorum to be able to do it. But they're the other bill, it, it is a bill. They would, they are looking to make sure to get rid of this quorum requirement. You know, the two thirds 
uh, or quorum requirement. So that's a bill that will come through rules. And, uh, and I think it was introduced by Senator Burdick to, to amend the Constitution to get rid of the quorum, the quorum requirement. Uh, you know, just bring it down to a simple majority. A simple majority. Wow. So, um, yeah, and, uh, Jenny Burdick uh, was just in the news again because uh, Senator Bartschiger wanted a referral for the cap and trade bill to uh, the, the voters to uh, be able to decide it on the ballot. And she came out and said, well, you know, uh, it, it's a very complex issue and we're not sure the voters would understand it. Yeah, I don't think anybody really buys that. And only in only in politics can you, you know, an employee, a politician tell their boss, the people, that they're too inept to understand <laughs> a job, a bill, and not get terminated. So right. uh, that, and, and, and I mean, but besides that too, you know how many, what she really means is voters, you know, voters, the voters will be able to understand what this bill is doing to them. And therefore I don't want it to go on. And you can look at Washington, Washington put their cap and trade on a ballot to the people and it didn't pass or right. or the fact that uh voters uh, have decided many complicated issues in the last you know for forever mm-hmm. uh, uh the property taxes thank goodness we have caps on those um and, and you know what else is funny is the history of the um quorum and the walkout if we didn't have this quorum if we if we didn't have the ability to walk out and deny quorum we wouldn't actually have the initiative process today (laughs) that was actually something back in i think it was the 1890s and that was something that one of the was one of the populists really wanted it. They wa- they wanted so bad. He was a legislator. They wanted it in a lawyer. They wanted he wanted uh, you know this in the initiative process for people to vote on bills and have them uh, you know. And there was no appetite to send send any anything to the people at that point. And so he got enough people to deny them this quorum. Until they 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 actually did give them the initiative process. Wow! And that's how we ended up with the initiative process today in Oregon was actually yes. through that. Well, and and you know, um, I think it was uh, Abraham Lincoln denied quorum in the Illinois legislature when he was a legislator that's by right. jumping out a window. Yes, that's right. So, so <laughs> that's one of my favorite yeah. stories. <laughs> there actually is a long history here of using that to actually. To actually get people, the, the people, to be engaged in in more of their legislative process. That, so the the Democrats are denying all, all these things. They want to get rid of anything that the people actually can vote on here. And um, you know, if, if for nothing else, the the walkout last time was absolutely. Um, it brought this issue to the forefront. You know, I think most people didn't, you know, they heard cap and trade, but weren't, weren't as aware of it. And that was something that brought it to everybody's attention. And so I think now it's getting a lot more um, of the public's awareness to it. And I think, I think the public absolutely would, would know, be able to look at this and see, see how horrible and what the costs are to them and their families. So, you know, and it occurs to me that this, um, uh, denial of quorum issue and this walkout issue that the uh, Senate Republicans executed last time and are thinking about this time, it, it's really a protection. It, obviously, they're in a super minority in both houses, as we've mentioned several times. 
it really is the constitutional principle of uh, um, protecting the rights of the min- the minority. Uh, mm-hmm. The right. just because you have a supermajority doesn't mean that other people don't have the right to have input into the lawmaking process and make something that uh, is is just for everybody, not just for the majority. That's right. That's absolutely true. Yep. And so, and, that, and that's that's the beauty of uh, of the Constitution is you that's know right. you, you you know it it has those mechanisms in there precisely to protect minorities against the tyranny of of a, of this kind of a majority. That's right, and that that's why when uh, the Democrats say that the Republicans should be doing their job, it rings hollow because they are actually doing their job. Exactly. All right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. Yep. Uh, Justin Brecht, thank you so much for being on the Behind the Curtain podcast. I appreciate it. We're about out of time. Um, I will uh, link the uh, Twitter account and the Facebook account for the Senate Republicans in the show notes so that people can follow along and see all of the wonderful stuff that the Democratic supermajority is uh, uh, doing to us in this short session coming up. Perfect. And uh, everybody should try to make it to the uh, February 6th rally. Yes, the Timber Unity Rally, uh, Capital Steps. uh, It sounds like it's going to be starting as early as uh, 5 a.m. There are going to be, I've heard rumors of as many as 1,700 trucks from around the state uh, Mm -hmm. circling the Capitol. Yeah, if you weren't there, if people weren't there, if you didn't get a chance to make it to the last one, boy, you're in for a real, real uh, show and treat uh, and (laughs) (laughs) come to February 6th. So, well, thanks for having me, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, let me know if there's anything uh, that comes down the pike and we'll be sure to get the word out. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Justin.